We're back to the Neil Haley Show on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome to the program Caregiver Dave. Dave, how are you? Um, you were telling me 95% your gas station. you got to give a plug out for people out in California that, you know, to go to your gas station, especially the fans that are, <laughs> listen, when they come to California, they got to check out your gas station. But it's great to know the economy's coming back and you're doing well. Yes, we're doing well. And, uh, if you're on Interstate 5 going north or south, I'm at the bottom of the grapevine. So stop in and get an espresso. We just got some nitro and cold brew as well. But we want to welcome to the show a great individual, uh, Naden Seal, Will Chesney. Am I saying it right? And it is, he's got, And he's got a new book out um, about his dog. And uh, it's called No Ordinary Dog. Cairo is his name. And Cairo was there, the only dog who was chosen to to help with the uh, uh, taking out Bin Laden in Pakistan. Will, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Hey, appreciate how it. How, how are you holding up with the uh, pandemic? Are you finally getting back to normal where you're at? Uh, things seem to be getting back to normal. I've, I've pretty much been quarantined in the middle of nowhere, so uh, but uh, getting out every once in a while, I see that things are starting to get back to normal, yeah. All right. Okay. And, yeah. What would you define as the middle of nowhere? <laughs> just curious. <laughs> uh, just not much around here. It's not that bad, but it just uh, I'm not in the I'm not out in the public too much if I don't want to be. <laughs> I live on well, a, I live I've, on a lake in the middle of the woods, kind of sort of. <laughs> I've got a million questions for you, but uh, we've got to try to stay focused here. Um, first of all, how did you and Cairo hook up? Well, um, after being a SEAL, you, um, your job's not done there. You have other collateral duties in the teams as well. Um, whether you just kind of go towards whatever you're drawn towards, sniping, breaching, um, skydiving. Dogs were <laughs> a really valuable tool. That um, There's a saying in the book. I remember being in the team room once and somebody saying, hey, raise your hand if a dog's ever saved your life. And everybody's hand in the team room went up almost. Wow. With multiple stories to tell. So once I saw the value of the dog, and I grew up with dogs, I love dogs. Um, I was I figured for the chance to save my guys, one of my teammates' lives, or you know, from getting hurt or something like that, it was totally worth it. it was uh, you know, not everybody wants to be a dog handler and have that responsibility of babysitting an animal while you're doing all these other things. But um, mm. I, it was something I was passionate about. Like I said, I love dogs, and if I had the chance of helping some one of my teammates out, then I was. Well, well, I doubt you think of him as an animal. I think of uh, like to think that you think of him as a best friend and a co con, co uh, co soldier. Yeah, I think so. Wow. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, definitely. So in that time, what were you serving right then and there when you were you met hooked up with the dog, and that's part of your duties after a certain time period as a Navy SEAL? What were you currently doing? Were you deployed somewhere or stationed when this, when you you guys met? When, um, when we met, I was not deployed. I just returned back from deployment. I was um, that previous deployment. There was a dog named Falco that we had actually lost. He um, he sacrificed his life, probably saving a couple saving a couple mm -hmm. guys from um, some enemies that were hiding, and they ended up killing him. But um, I was supposed to receive him once I returned from that deployment. 
unfortunately he didn't make it. So when we got back from deployment, uh, some trainers had went overseas and bought some new dogs and I went through the whole gamut of new dogs and all the new handlers got to handle all the new dogs and the trainers made assessments of what personalities go where it worked out well. It sounds like it for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I wonder what, what are the really dangerous things that dogs do? I mean, I can only imagine. And do they know, (laughs) do they know what they're doing? I mean, do they know that they're going into uh, a life and death situation that may not make it? I mean, I know it's probably impossible to figure out what's going on in their minds, but uh, when you're around them a lot, uh, you know, you start understanding them, don't you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I would say that they they probably knew their job was a little dangerous, but um, they love doing their job. You know, it's, they love to work. These are working dogs. They, they're they happy when they're working. Um so I tell people these days, don't go out and buy a mountain wall until you know what you're getting into. That's any sort of working dog. But they do have to go anywhere that we go. So, you know, that's fast roping, skydiving, towing, gunfire explosions. We ask a lot of these animals, and that's why we uh, treat them with the respect that we do is because well, we treat them like they're members of the family, they're members of the team, it's because they are. Um, you know, we yeah. ask a lot of them to go into a dark room and get into a fight with somebody twice their size and not come off of that fight until we get there so, mm. along with everything else you know and, and unfortunately they get shot sometimes doing that so that's why um that's why we consider them part of the team you know that's so what's, wow what's go, the, go ahead Neil. no i was gonna say and you know when you think about the the challenges during training they could really get injured and never be able to be a service dog right if you do certain, oh, yeah yeah does that happen a lot? Even during, yeah. This, yeah, we're safe as possible. It's like, uh, even during, especially with everybody, you know, it's, it's a saying that we go, <clears throat> that we say is that nobody outranks safety <laughs> in order to do such a job. Nobody gets hurt all the time, especially the dogs. We're, we're as safe as possible. So even like during skydiving evolutions, I wouldn't jump with them. Uh, only some of the stronger jumpers in the squadron would jump with them. Mm. Do they freak out pretty much when they're falling <laughs> from you know, every, 30,000 every, feet? Every dog's like, you know, they're like people. They've got different personalities. But uh, as far as I could tell, most of the dogs seem pretty pretty chill when they were jumping out. Yeah, especially after the second time. Yeah. Uh, what's, the main, what's the main cause of death? Is it getting shot or other things? Well, you know, there's bombs over there, so there could be suicide vests. But I would mm-hmm. say they get shot quite a bit. I mean especially in law enforcement. This is just one story. This is just mine and Cairo's story. We know we were part of the Bin Laden mission, which is a big piece of history, but um, there was a lot more to Cairo than just that one mission. And uh, there's a lot more teams out there than just me and Cairo. This brings attention to just like, not only just in the military, but law enforcement, and, uh, even support dogs and support animals do. And, you know, search and rescue dogs just kind of shed, shed light on what, amazing things dogs can do for us yeah wow i mean so what did you have an idea that that was your mission ben laden with your dog when you first heard about it like they they just give you these secret missions right did you have an idea this would be so historical for you and your dog it took a little while for it to come around but it didn't really matter to us we were just there to be doing our job to the best of our ability we were trained for anything and sure we weren't told at first what we were doing but it didn't really matter we just knew it was important 
what we were doing usually was important. So we tried to be prepared for anything and it just happened to be pretty important. So we did a good pretty, job. Definitely important when you say so, Dave. <laughs> you think? Uh, we were so trying to be prepared right for anything. There? Were you right there when Bin Laden was, was found? I was there on the ground. Me, me and Kyra were there doing our job. Did it did it happen the way we heard it uh, in the media, or were there things missing, or things that should have been added? Uh, I, we've got to be uh, declassified by now, don't you think? Yeah, I don't know. We we had the book approved through the Department of Defense, so everything that's in the book is has been approved. I know there's been a few other books that's been written. Uh, you know, if, if if you're asking if it happened just like Zero Dark Thirty, I would say no. Yeah. But you know that's. I got the book out there, a big piece of history, and get the truth out there. It kind of shed some light about what our responsibilities were that night. But there's a few books I, out there. I, that I heard you had happened. some problems uh, getting the cover approved by the military. What was the problem with that? I guess they didn't want the trident on the cover, so we went through that process and we respected the Navy's wishes of taking it off. So it was a copyright infringement. Can you explain the trident? What is that? Trident is the pin or the insignia that you receive after completing BUDS or basic underwater demolition SEAL training. That's the training you have to complete. It's like six or seven months long. Mm. You have to, it's a very rigorous selection process. Some say it's the hardest military training in the world. You have to complete BUDS oh. in order to become a Navy SEAL, and they award you the Trident at the end of it. See, see, wow. I guess they didn't want yeah. copying it and. Uh, I guess Cairo didn't go through buds. I don't know exactly why, but it's all good. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, yeah. to think about this, it's like you it's like your Super Bowl in a certain way or take us back to the place, but let's take it through the dog's eyes because I'm sure in the book you wrote more about that mission even though it's written about the dog as the process is almost a bi- not a biography of the dog, but really the but let's take it through your eyes. What were you thinking the day that you never knew he was going to that you were going to get him, but what was your thoughts through that time period when you're on the ground? Just try to keep it calm as possible. Just treat it like any other night. Um, we knew who we were going after it was a little more important. It was a little different, but you know, we just uh, panic never helps in any situation or just overthinking things. I guess. So we we were there. We were properly trained. We knew we had put in the work to be well prepared and we were so you know it was a we just hopefully accomplished the mission yes and hopefully we make it home safe we knew that there was a higher chance that we might not be making it home but uh, everybody there was fine with that as long as we accomplished the mission and it all got done and uh, and hopefully we make it home to our family safe because that was probably what was going through most people's minds yeah as i recall there was some debate about you know taking photos of him and and uh, some uh, Middle Easterners saying it wasn't really him or conspiracy theories. What was really going on there? I have no idea. I don't pay attention to that stuff. <laughs> That's <laughs> smart. Yeah. See, he, he I doesn't. I think it was pretty done. <laughs> you know, hey, maybe they're right. Maybe we're right. Who knows? But uh, as far as I know, it was all good. We, we, we completed the mission successfully, and they can say everybody's entitled to their opinion. Yeah. How do you guys uh, celebrate a mission, a win, a win at a mission where you successfully did exactly what you wanted? 
I took Cairo home and I fed him steak. And we had a great night <laughs> home. Just me and him. <laughs> in the book, if you read about it in the book, I got a little bit of trouble over it, but really? okay. it was totally worth it. Well, what an honor that they chose him out of all the other dogs. What was his uh, resume looking like at that point before he went, that they that they chose him? We had a lot of great working dogs there. The, the, the dogs have to go through a, like a seal selection process just like we do. Mm-hmm. So all the dogs we had there were really good workers. If not, they just go to a different place. They go to, We usually give them the police department or somewhere they're better used, but... Uh, all the hard, all the dogs there that we had to command, really hard workers. Um, we just returned back from that deployment, so we were pretty fresh. Um, was no dog anymore. Yeah. How old is Cairo, and are you both retired now, or are you still on active duty? I'm retired. How is life Cairo. after the military? First for you, and then I, and I, and then for Cairo. Uh, it was pretty rough for me. Like Cairo was, he passed away of stomach cancer, so it was pretty rough for oh him. My, as well. oh my. We had Sorry, a good, yeah. uh, yeah. okay, we had a good year at home. I had a motorcycle with a sidecar and a boat we used to take trips on, so I don't think he loved being in the water, but I think he liked being out on the boat. So we had a good uh, year left at the end of his life, I would say, except for the whole cancer thing, that, that thing that gets terrible. Oh, yeah. So how does that work? Um, are are you like the owner of the dog when when the dog is taken out of commission and and uh, was you were never the owner of the dog, right? It's the military who owns the dog. Yeah, the military owns the dog, and then once they get retired, you can put in paperwork to get them to see if you're able to take them home. These are mm. uh, working animals. These aren't just like household pets so the command right. has to evaluate every place or every home that these dogs are going to and make sure it's a proper fit so i mean it was lucky for me at, at the time i was going through my medical issues because if i was still working as a seal i might not have been able to take Cairo home and have him retired so he, so he was like your service dog basically serving as that function i would say so he definitely helped me get through some tough times i, I would i helped him get through the cancer and some tough times he definitely helped me get through some tough times as well you are each other's caregivers. Wow. And see, that, that brings up later on in our conversation <clears throat> about why Dave uh, is on the program. But we'll kind of go ahead. But, Dave, uh, go ahead with the next question. I mean, that, I mean, this is what we forget about. And this is before I go to Dave. I, I, just, I guess I have to say something. The, the sacrifice that men and women do for our military, the challenges, the, the, the sacrificing their entire lives <laughs> for us to be free. And to not value that is just, I just don't understand. Because that's, as I said, thank you for your service when uh, he called. After hearing more and more of the story, I don't know if I could sacrifice my entire life for, the, for our country. Mm. So we have to have a better open arms day for, for veterans after duty and really be there for them because of the trials and tribulations they go through, Dave. Yeah. Would would you say that post-traumatic stress disorder is the most common thing that uh, veterans suffer with when they come back home? And are things getting better with the VA and with the attitude of the administration and and just the general public? I'm not sure exactly what the biggest issue is. I had a lot of traumatic brain injury or TBI to deal with. Mm. I I think it was accumulation of a lot of things, a lot of loss of friends and 
some brain injuries, some other injuries as well, and some self-medicating on top of that. I don't think all that was the best mixture. Uh, <clears throat> Me transitioning out of the military, and it was really rough. And um, like I said, it covers it in kind of more detail. In your book. We went to and No Ordinary Dog. But it's a big part of my life now because... Go ahead, Dave. Do you feel like you're getting the support uh, that you need as veterans? Yeah. So I say now that I tell in Cairo's story, I'm hoping to help other veterans out there. And just I know there's great people out there. They're not getting the support that they need, possibly from the VA. You know, every VA is different. You might have a good one, but you might not have a good one. But uh, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of great people out there that are willing to help you. And there's a lot of different modalities to try, whether it's breathing or meditating or fasting, praying or some sort of brain treatment. You know, there's there's a lot of different things to try out and test. You know, there's there really are a lot of great people that are willing to help if you just. Uh, right, is that it's not easy to always reach out to? Is, is that your mission, in a lot of ways, at home to really help other veterans, what you went through, and how you've been able to recover and help those that don't have the resources or help that you were able to get through your own yeah, one, yeah. Telling my story can help shed a little bit of light on some foundations or just some modalities. Perfect. I know I heard of a few things that I didn't listen to that just kind of went right over my head that some buddies told me up about. And now that I've been out of hearing them in, in a different context, I guess I started to use a few of them or at least try them out. And it's just um, so maybe if telling my story reaches, I guess, gets the point across and reaches somebody and have them try either reach out to somebody that might need help or try a different modality or just start doing different things. You know, just hearing somebody tell their story can help sometimes, I guess. And if, if mine helps, then that's what I'm willing to do. See, David. Yeah, well, I admire you. Yeah. I, I admire you so much. You're telling your story. Walk me through the process of, of getting to the point where you say, you know, I can do something to help others as opposed to just sitting home, you know, uh, moping or whatever. And because uh, there's a lot of vets who have a story. In fact, they all have stories and they all could be doing what you're doing. How, how would you encourage them to to do that? And how hard was it for you to get to the point mentally in your mind? You say, you know what, by God, I'm going to do this. And did you have any help? Yeah, I definitely had had some help. I, I probably wouldn't have reached out if it was just me alone. I, I tell people that it's a really hard thing to do. So I also say it, it took my best friend. His name is Jared Shaw. Kind of reached out to me and drug me to one of my first brain treatment places. And it was, you know, one of my first steps on a long road to recovery, but you know, I didn't reach out. So I tell, I tell people, you know, if somebody, if you know of somebody in need, then maybe reach out to them and give them a phone call or something. And it's not just people in the military, right? It's that they're dealing with certain brain injuries or, or, you know, PTSD or, bipolar or some sort of uh, disorder you have to be there for them and try to get them the help they need right oh yeah definitely this is not they're not brain injury stuff this is all kinds of different you know somebody that might need a hand just reach out to them that's what we should do anyways sometimes it's hard to even take your own advice but you know get the point across to some people wow I, I admire you so much thank you Thank you so much for your service and for this book and how you're helping other people. Absolutely. So um, Dave has, has a final question, unless he has other questions. But the reason he is here, and I think, Dave, perfectly enough, you see someone, an example like Will, and you say the example of service. And that's what you do with caregivers. So explain that to Will. 
Yeah, well, well, I was just a normal guy, kind of like everybody else. And then one day, when we were, when my wife and I, after we married 21 years, entering into the empty nest phase of life, all the kids are grown up. You know, we got the freedom, we got the finances to travel, and then she complains to me about this headache she's been having for three days—a headache of her life. Turned into a stroke, lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side. And in that moment, our world turned upside down. Next two years was like a living hell for both of us. You know, she was angry and bitter most of the time, just going through the grief process. But, uh, you know, I, I found a support group and got help and, and slowly uh, started taking care of me first. And when she started coming around, started being her old self again, our love was rekindled. And now we travel the country, been on television, uh, 35 TV shows, and uh, Harvard, NASDAQ, Carnegie Hall. We're speaking all over the place helping caregivers to stay alive because 30% of them actually died before their loved ones do. And I like to say through my website, caregiverdave.com and my book, it's my life to thrive and stay alive as a caregiver that if you're not a caregiver yet, <laughs> just wait, you're either going to become one, you're going to need one. I, I like to ask our guests what experience, uh, including the obvious one, obviously, uh, have, has caregiving touched your life? Just to have that support from those people. I mean, a lot of guys get out of the military and they think that they're losing their family and they're losing that support group, or guys or girls. Um, but that's not that's not the case. It's good to know that there's other really good people out there that are willing to give you a, a hand, and it's it's amazing. I'm, uh, yeah, you've been on both sides of the fence. You've been receiving care and you've been given care. Yeah, definitely. I think they're both very important. So we'll got to be there for each other and exactly. support each other when we can. Now, Will, yeah. kind of give us some best place we can find info on you. We could purchase your book, all finer bookstores. But what about info information on you and what you're doing? Uh, I think the best place right now is No Ordinary Dog Book on Facebook and Instagram. And yeah, you should be able to pick up the book in any any stores or anywhere online. And whatever whatever is coming in the future, I'm, I'm assuming I'll be posting about it on a uh, Facebook or Instagram. So we'll see where it all goes. Well, again, this is a great way to get information about uh, a tremendous story, but also a story of of courage after the fact, after what you've done and what you've gone through. And you're a tremendous uh, inspiration towards so many people. And you should be you should be highlighted more. You should be on the news more than other people that are are being put on a pedestal for what you've done for us. And thank you again for your service. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you. God bless you, man. All right. Take care. God bless you as well. All right. Take care. Have a great day. I see you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. You listen to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show in the Total Celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome the program. My good, my buddy, my pal. We just never know who we're going to talk to next. Caregiver Dave Nasani. Dave, how are you? And uh, you know great, what? I great. just I just feel great about the economy. I really do. I'm ready to be rolling. I, I you know, we still are the new normal, but it's great to see everywhere open up, and it's shocking to see California opening up, Dave. Yeah. Um... You know, I have a gas station, for those of you who don't know, and we're about 95% of normal. People are coming out of the woodwork on the highway. They're, they're stir-crazy, and they're, they're on the road, and they're just going wherever they want to go. And I'm selling them gas. I'm selling them face masks. I'm, they're using my restroom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, David, introduce our guest. 
Well, we have an attorney today, uh, John O'Connor, and he's an experienced trial attorney, practicing law in San Francisco, of all places, since 72, so he's old like us. <laughs> he's tried cases in state, federal courts throughout the country, served an assistant U.S. attorney in Northern California from 74, 79, representing U.S. in both criminal and civil cases. And he's got some pretty famous, ballsy cases here. Um, talking about OPEC, the oil embargo of the 70s, which I was around selling gas in. I wasn't uh, alive. State of mind briefs for prosecution in the United States for Patricia Hearst. I remember her. <laughs> Representing FDIC, FSLC, and RTC during the savings and loan crisis. Boy, that takes balls. And of late, the 80s and the 90s, representing California Attorney General Dan Lundgren in campaign-related litigation. Boy, if I ever get in trouble, John, I'm going to hire you. <laughs> Welcome to the show. <laughs> well, I like that. I like that. Who cares about my book? Just tell people to hire me. <laughs> <laughs> if you're, if you, and guess what? There's a lot of more opportunities now for being an attorney because you can sue people for. Uh, now you could represent people that are been hurt by the cops if this ends up happening. More lawsuits. Yeah, it's going to open up you more attorneys. It's terrible. Yeah. You even have experience with Mark Cuban. Yeah, we. Oh love yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Mark and Mark Rose. Yeah, yeah. Mark and I became kind of friendly enemies. I ended up, uh, he, and, he and I ended up getting along pretty well, even though I don't think I was his favorite person for a couple of years there. But, you know, what the heck? Well, so, you're a very timely guest with what's going on today. My first question to you is Antifa, <laughs> terrorist group, right? Can he do well, this? Right. Well, he, he do this? well, first of all, he, he's, you know, where, what I admire the president for mostly he's got great street fighting instincts and what he's, well, he's doing clean. here and he does not listen there's no first of all there's they're not a terrorist uh group under the statutes that helps you do anything uh domestic terrorism means nothing under the statute but because you have to be a foreign terrorist to get any of the advantages of wiretapping and all that stuff but but by calling attention to Antifa, that's a big deal because up to now they've really gotten by with a lot of stuff. Here they are, very organized, crossing state lines to incite a riot. Uh, I'm no fan of what people did on 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 either side in Charlottesville, uh, certain people, but nobody paid attention to Antifa there. And there are a lot of really nice protesters, peaceful people out there carrying their candles and all that. But then you've got Antifa. And they are there to disturb the stuff. Let's put it that way. And they're crossing state lines and they are, uh, you know, encouraging people to do violent things. And so and they I go think, after black people, too. It's like some black lives matter. Well, some I'll tell you this. We've got a nice black guy that was over here in Oakland guarding the federal building and he got ambushed. He just got whacked uh, somebody else. I think probably the same guy whacked another guy and uh uh, in Aptos, which is south of San Francisco. So we've had two drive-by uh, assassinations of people in uniform because they were in uniform. Those are assassinations. One of them was a black guy, one's a white guy. Uh, and then there was the fellow David, uh, I forget what David's name is, something not, not Dinkins, but close to that, that was the uh, black police officer that got assassinated a little while ago. So, that yeah, there are a lot of lives and nobody's protesting those. And no. that's what bothers me. It's like, wait, wait, wait a second. If, if I, I was horrified by what happened to, to George Floyd. Like, 
like most people, like 96% of the country was horrified by it. So who are we protesting against? I don't know. But if this is just a way of, of uh, causing civil unrest, it's bad. And uh, and we've got to, We've got to look at this and people have got to call out Antifa on this. And that's why I think the president is is smart to, to raise their profile. No, absolutely. Yeah, no Democrat will criticize them, will they? You notice that. What kind of you know you hear all this talk about? Oh, speaking truth to power, big moral, uh, having moral courage, and all this. These are little pipsqueaks. Where where are their voices? <laughs> where are they? You little cowards! You guys are cowards. Look in the mirror and say, "I am a coward," because you know when when times like this, you're supposed to speak out. And there are all kinds of platitudes that people talk about, you know. But boy, who's who's speaking up on this? Nobody on the left side of things is really calling these people out. So let's go kill some more police officers. I hope the independents are listening. So why? So so Dave. So see Dave's again being a commentator, not a journalist. I'm going to go with my journalistic question for our guest. Now the question I'm going to ask is specifically the the reason why Antifa's kind of shut down after President Trump went and said there's no more violence or else we're going to get the national guard and stop this completely have we seen less violent protests especially antifa members after he issued that decree i think we have i think uh even though people protested what he said and made it look like he was some kind of a wild guy for actually saying that we should restore order uh the fact is they have stopped to a great degree and people forget that our whole Constitution, the very Constitution we supposedly revere, that the great General Mattis, who's probably not to be confused with Aristotle or uh, Edmund Burke, let me put it that way, said, oh, well, he's threat- Trump's threatening the Constitution. What people should realize that our Constitution was signed because of something called Shays' Rebellion, in which a bunch of people, it was civil, they're American citizens, civil unrest, they started, uh, you know, rioting because of the taxes that were imposed. And I understand why they were mad. The people west of the Appalachians are going to tax, and they don't have hard currency. The, the Articles of Confederation did not have enough power in a chief executive to put these things down. We had no national militia, and it was very difficult to get all the state militias ready to go to go put this thing down. So we signed the Constitution, and then the Bill of Rights is ratified in 1791. The ink is barely dry on it when you have the Whiskey Rebellion in western Pennsylvania and many other places, too. George Washington gets on his horse, gets 3,000 soldiers, and goes up there and opens a can of whoop-ass on these guys. He's not getting arrest warrants. He's not getting search warrants. This is, and he's not worrying about the Bill of Rights because it is a matter of national security. And it's exactly why the Constitution was uh, passed with a, with a strong chief executive. The anti-federalists who didn't like concentrations of power said Shays Rebellion means that we got to have a new constitution and we got to have power to put down civil insurrections so now today we have the brilliant the brilliant general mattis who while i was studying constitutional law and practicing constitutional law he was saying hup up one two three four right flank left flank go kill those people i don't think he's a constitutional expert as much as i revere any man in uniform that served people and i'm a great admirer of him for that 
you know, somebody puts it in his head that this is unconstitutional. It's not. An, he's not threatening the Constitution. He's enforcing the Constitution. That's what Trump was threatening to do. Guess what? If you keep destroying property, I'm actually going to invoke the Constitution and keep people's property from being destroyed and lives from being threatened. How's that? Is that a bad thing? Well, you know, uh, General Madison and I have a different view of the Constitution. So, and that that's a great point, and I want to go into that. Let's see, that's where um, the questions kind of swirl is, yes, President Trump's mistake, if you're looking at PR, the decisions he's made with the economy have been brilliant. Uh, bottom line, there, absolutely, I applaud him with the decisions he's made to get the economy back and going, getting the country up and running again, even though there are still cases of coronavirus, we still had to do this because our country is too built on small businesses and not government control that we had to do what we did or we would be in poverty beyond belief. They cannot. And then they look at the stock market. The stock market has come back thanks to Trump's decisions, President Trump's decisions. Now they have to look at him politically. They have to look at his constitutional decisions he's making. But based on those constitutional decisions that uh, President Trump is making, uh, if he wouldn't be tweeting all the time, who knows or have pulled the stunt with the picture at uh, in front of the church, maybe they wouldn't have them on this either, John. Well, you know something? Uh, here's my problem. Everybody says on the other side that uh, Trump is divisive. And I personally would love it if he would show, would have shown for the last three years a softer side to get the mainly college-educated women in the middle. They're in the independence. I call them the Bryn Mawr House. I wish he would do more to bring my wife's crowd into this and say, you know, I'm a nice guy and I'm warm and fuzzy and then do, do a shtick uh, another half of the time. He hasn't. I criticize him for that just from a political point of view because he's sometimes too confrontational. That said, anything he's going to do or say is going to get in, in today's environment is going to get pushed back. And so I, I guess, uh, you know, we're, to, we're to, on, a, on a course here where it doesn't matter what he says, and he shouldn't be cowed. I wish he would tweet less. I wish I, I would like to volunteer to go to Washington and rewrite his tweets, yes. uh, you know, uh, and uh, they could be I could make them funny and sweet and nice and get the thing across. I mean, I do this for my clients. I can do it for him. But uh, but uh, but nonetheless, it's, he is who he is. Uh, you know, like they say, he's a scorpion. You know, hey. You bit me. Why did you bite me? Well, I'm a scorpion. <laughs> you know, that's what I do. And this is what Trump does. And he got elected to some degree. And we have the other thing about it's about a third of the country is so highly ideologically politicized that everything can be spun in an opposite way. If 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 Trump did the same thing Obama did using drones to, to go kill a bunch of people around the world, it would be there'd be a terrible outcry. You know, Obama does it. It's just, it's, hey, it's cool. You know, Obama wiretaps James Rosen. If Trump, Trump did that to some journalists, I mean, there'd be an outcry. So to a certain extent, uh, you know, it, 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 it's wrong. I mean, there's too much, uh, you know, partisanship here. On the other hand, you can say, wait a second. He kind of, he kind of is asking for a, he's kind of spoiling for yes. a fight. So, you know, and, and, and my view of it is he does it too much. And I wish he would do it <laughs> about half as much. Um, and it bec because just from a political, we need to we need in a democracy, we need to gather a majority. And it's not the people that when I try a case to a jury, uh, 
I, I can look at that jury and say, okay, you've got three people on my side, four people. The other guy's got three or four people on his side right away. I'm aiming for those people in the middle. And it usually is the or the women or the females. And you've got to win the case with them in the middle of the pack that can go either way, that are listening, they're, they, they're, they're not ideologically fixed. That's how you win a jury trial. And unfortunately, that's also how you win a democracy. And he's not doing yeah. that enough. And so he's trying to go hard and trying to get everybody to go with the three or four hardline guys that are already in the corner. And so that's my only criticism. I mean, the guy's got great instincts in many ways. I totally agree. He hits, he hits, his, he hits yeah. a lot of targets pretty well. Um, but, uh, gee, uh, so I think we're in agreement on that. Um, uh, I got to sort of back him up on things. Another thing that bothers me is we're in such a cancel culture today, and you look at uh, who was it? The New York Times guys got fired for the op-ed, the Philadelphia yeah, Inquiry. I heard about that. Yeah. For for now, we are getting people fired for free speech. speech yes. I mean, it's just stunning by by a reputable senator making a point that probably seventy percent of the country agrees with. We have. Had point is call out the troops when there's an insurrection and and people get fired for, for that very respectable side you don't have to agree with cotton it doesn't even right to say something then the philadelphia inquiry inquiry guy who wants to save uh, the, the buildings in philadelphia uh and he's fired so we have a real crisis and this is a crisis of democracy because the founders uh, talk about a free press. The free press is what is supposed to protect us, protect us from fo uh, toxic factionalism. Excuse me, I'm getting tied up here. Mobocracy, they're really worried about that. It turns out the press is now an agent of factionalism. It is not a curative of factionalism. And I don't know how we stop it. I just don't know how we do it. That's one of the reasons I wrote my book, uh, Postgate, was to stop factionalism in the media i don't know that <laughs> because the media is so factionalized i don't think they're gonna no you know, it's not gonna stop anytime okay <laughs> that'd be interesting okay dave next question yeah you know the, you're right the middle uh of the road people the independents are mostly women and do you think trump is uh getting points from them with all of this talk, I can't believe the people who are talking about defunding or dismantling the police department, and they're serious. And Minnesota, I guess, is already doing it. Doesn't that put fear in middle-class women's hearts that would yes. normally not vote for Trump, but now they will, that the I, Democrat I, Party has, has just embraced too much radicalism? I think that's a very astute question, and you just hit the nail on the head. Trump does well with the middle of the road when the other side goes way too far yes. because they realize that he's that thin line between them and chaos. And, yes, if you're a woman in your home, and, and as we're thinking here, is somebody going to come and get us? And, and all of a sudden you realize you're not safe in your own home. And, uh, and, and so, yes, I think that appeals to women. I think they see this on TV, and I, I, I don't think – I think it's a 70-30 issue, 70 in favor of Trump's position, and yes, a very astute question. You know, and so I... And to the same women who would be most likely to go out and get a gun. Right, right, yes. right. Now, see, the thing that the mistake I think that they're making is that what the Democratic Party's talking about, dismantling the police department or defunding the police department, doesn't mean get rid of it. 
a lot of people protesting and they're getting in numbers and numbers and numbers believe that they are trying to end the police altogether, John. And that is a bad decision because I don't think they're going to be stopped. And they don't understand that there is going to be a final uh, finish to this debate. That when they find out what dismantle and defund means, it doesn't mean get rid of the whole police altogether. Some people think it is, but at the end of the day, the people that are living in their houses in a nice neighborhood almost outside of there are like, oh no, I'm not going to get rid of the police altogether. And that's the bad uh, the mainstream media showing the truth that they don't understand what dismantle and defund means. Well, that's right. Look, it, it doesn't take a genius to look at TV and see people breaking uh, into into stores and just looting stuff. Uh, so when you talk about defunding the police, you're saying, okay, it's this is going to be easier. I read an article today where somebody said, oh, defunding doesn't mean cut out police departments it means they're not going to do things like getting kittens out of trees or uh, stop uh, you know intervene on little minor things i'm sorry i'm sorry you defund the police you're going to get less protection let's be yes, honest about truly it are. and and it is and if you defund the police it's going to make it even more dangerous for anybody to be a cop i feel sorry for these guys they put their lives at risk for a puny salary and they ought to be respected. Uh, I look. I'm the first guy I will tell you. I mean, I've almost had I've got, had had cops close to punching my lights out. I was smart enough to say yes, sir, no, sir, yes, officer. Uh, don't please don't do that. Uh, but um, I can, you know, there's some there's some you know really pent up guys out there because their job is so hard and there's so much pressure on them that sometimes they can snap. I understand that. But at the same time, I want to be real respectful. When I see cops in a coffee shop, I buy them their coffee yes. uh, because they're doing stuff for us. And, uh, you know, let, let's try to the answer isn't to defund the police. The answer is, if anything, to give more money to the police departments, train people better. Let's all respect the police and not make an us against them. Let's not go out and shoot them, because if you think that's going to keep them from being on edge, the more cops you shoot, the more likely it is they're going to see you reach in your pocket and say, oh, you know, take your hand out of your pocket. You're drunk. You don't take it out of your pocket and boom, you get a you get a bullet. Well, you know, after this, can you blame somebody? It's going to make police more on edge every time one gets shot. You had those five police officers in Dallas get wiped out. I forget what it was that was because the lead at the time. I, I don't know if it was shuttled or whatever it was. You know we can't do this. We can't do this. It's it's not, and it's it's not good for anybody, and it's certainly not good for the black community. It's terrible for the black community, and I think you'll find. Uh, I just my heart went out. I saw some an owner, a black owner of a of a business in Oakland, just yeah. crying and oh saying, gosh, "This is yeah. my life savings. I built this up, and now what's happening?" Uh, you know, it's a. Uh, it, the, the, the reaction, I understand it. I was sickened by the, the picture of Floyd dying. Everybody was. Yeah. But we, but 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 especially with uh, you add Antifa to this thing and put fuel to the fire. George Soros, I think, is probably not helping things out. And uh, and and now we we do the a- absolute wrong thing because it goes back to Saul Alinsky's playbook. This is an opportunity to create some division. Let's do it. Uh, so it's, it's the future. I, I got to not to be too apocalyptic here, guys, but 
I think the future of our democracy is hanging in the balance here, right? That we don't have free sure. speech, we have riots, uh, you know, and they're being justified by, right. by people in the, authority. They're, they're, I, don't, I don't think the Democrats understand the magnitude, let's say, if one of the cops gets off, that they're not going to be able to stop until riots or the rioting will be outrageous. If one of the cops gets off on this and does not get charged... I mean, gets uh, convicted. There, there. It's it's going to be chaos, and the, well, it'll be stopped by President Trump, unless and and it, chaos not by peaceful protesters, but by Antifa. No, and, I don't. I think I think it's more. Up. No, no. I think it's going to be more than that. I think it's going to be Black Lives Matter. I think it's going to be any African American is going to be just going crazy, and it'll be just like MLK again. And so that's Black the, Lives Matter has their own history of violence as well. True, we we understand that. But the MLK and the what happened with uh, Malcolm X death, this will be serious. And they've already said if they don't get convicted, uh, and then yeah. that's it. But all right, my, uh, Dave has a calmer question the caregiver question go ahead and ask oh, i got one more before that do we have time <laughs> uh, uh we have if i oh. I, I would just go with the caregiver you ask it real quick dave say 30 second question right. ask john go ahead ask the, the i saw i saw an article about how the nazis did the brown shirts youth that went out terrorizing the neighborhood and it reminded me of the youth because these are young people antifa how they going out in intimidating store owners uh, terrorizing them, burning, looting, etc. Do you see any uh, similarity between what the Nazis did with the brown shirts and then pretty soon the police were allowing them to do it? It's almost like the brown shirts were accountable to the police who was accountable to Hitler. Well, first of all, it's, it's so funny that the so-called anti-fascists would be acting right. exactly like fascists and people for well, that's what they the, do. They accuse what they're, what they are, you what, know? what they, they accuse what they are. And people forget historically that the term anti-fascist to make fascists seem like they're conservative fascists are socialists. Number one, it's called national socialism. They're socialists, but, but it was Stalin who tried to portray them as being these right wingers. And he was the guy that came up with the term anti-fascist. Meanwhile, He's killing millions and millions of people in Ukraine and other places, and he's a bigger thug than Hitler ever was. And I don't – Hitler was crazy as hell. Uh, at least Hitler was was uh, not killing everybody. I mean Stalin would kill whole countries. I mean how many people did he decimate in the Ukraine? Uh, so the, the term anti-fascist does not have a good history to it, and, and these are more fascist than any fascist. I, I, I think it's kind of, it's just ironic that that's what they're doing. It is. It's very much brown shirt. You're afraid to, uh, you know, uh, and people in Germany were afraid to act like they were in any way uh, against Hitler or against the regime or, for God's sakes, Jewish and against the regime. Or you were a writer who uh, was against it. Oh, boy, you were going to get the heck beat out of you. And now that's what we got. That's what we got. That's what the anti-fascists do. It's terrible. All right, so here's my last question. Go ahead, Dave. I'm a caregiver. Uh, my wife had a stroke 21 years ago. She lost her speech, became paralyzed. I've been traveling the country on TV and stages. I've uh, been on 35 TV shows talking to, to caregivers because 30% of them died before the loved ones do. And I wrote a book. Uh, it's My Life Too, Thrive and Stay Alive as a Caregiver. Got a website, caregiverdave.com, online support for caregivers. Has there been any caregiving in your life, John? Well, um, not of any appreciable nature. Uh, I'll say this. It's a blessing 
when you are able to stay with an older relative. We had uh, uh, my mother-in-law set up in a hospital bed in our living room for a number of months. Uh, she was visiting from Pennsylvania and she got deathly ill. And, you know, it, it was a wonderful time. The kids were their caregivers. I was a caregiver and I've never been in that role. Of course, my wife was. And we had a very sweet time with my mother-in-law and we sort of saw her off and it was a very nice thing. And I think, uh, Dave, your work uh, should be inspiring because I think people really get rewarded. And this is the little, that's the only experience I really have with it, you know, and yet it was so rewarding for all of us. Uh, I can see why, uh, you know, why caregiving is such a special part of our society. And there are a lot of people out there that really need recognition. And thank you for everything you're doing on this. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Where can we purchase your book, John, and everything? And go to caregiverdave.com right now. Yeah. Check it out. But uh, where can we find info on you, John? Where's the best place to book? Well, my book is called uh, Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat Covered Up Watergate and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. Um, go to either Amazon.com or, or my own uh, site has all the reviews and so forth on it. It's called postgatebook.com, postgatebook.com. And uh, it, you really understand how the media got out of whack. If you read this, it'll tell you everything you need to know about Watergate in a very uh, short, concise book, but also talk about the media and how the media sort of uh, slanted, more than slanted things, they were deceitful in Watergate. Awesome. I'm sorry we didn't talk more about your book, but I assume that everything we spoke about uh, are some topics that are in your book. That's right. That's right. How we can have the partisan press we have today and mm. people understand that they can make profit by being partisans. And that's really the, the, the lesson of Watergate. Exactly. Do you think what, the people that are accusing Trump uh, that this is worse than Watergate, is anything worse than Watergate? What happened, what was perpetrated on him? Well, like one guy who reviewed my book said the phrase worse than Watergate has a new meaning after you read O'Connor's book. Because worse than Watergate means could mean that the press is even more deceitful than they were in Watergate, <laughs> and I think that's what Amen. we see all over the place here. Yeah, awesome. Look at Russiagate. Reporting is dead. Yeah, Russiagate, Ukraine Gate. It was all about deceit. The the the, the media knew all the facts that came out later. They knew them early. I've written a couple op-eds. You'll see them on postgatebook.com. Uh, you know, I was writing about this in 2017. Here's the information. It's right there. Why isn't anybody saying anything about it? No, because they like the scandal. Awesome. Okay. They were just mm -hmm. adding fuel to the fire. All right, guys. Well, yeah. appreciate you guys. The, same. Uh, the names have changed. Yeah. Gr great topic today. And uh, everyone that's upset at me, uh, make sure you tweet me at Total Tutor and see what you say. All right, guys. Appreciate <laughs> appreciate you guys coming on. Okay. Thank you, guys. All right. All right. Great talking to you. All right. Take, take, care. Oh, take care. Okay. Bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Neil Haley here. Lensec has been a sponsor of the Neil Haley show and Total Media Network for around a year and a half. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about Lensec. Lensec has been a pioneer in IP security videos since 1998. The company is a trusted security partner with experience around the world. Lensec has experience working with customers in higher education, K through 12 education, government, public safety, critical infrastructure, healthcare, commercial, and more. The physical security experts at Lensec help customers develop enterprise solutions for their complex physical security projects using our flagship software, Perspective VMS. 
Lensex Enterprise Level Video Management Software, Perspective EMS, is a browser-based software that streams and captures IP security camera video. The latest version of PVMS uses HTML5 interactive features in a thin client application that is designed to provide real-time situational awareness. Access control and other advanced features are integrated into a unified security platform, creating an ability to track behavior and movement while monitoring the live or recorded video. For more information, please visit lensec.com. And now back to the show. We're back to the Neil Haley Show on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome the program, Caregiver Dave. Dave, how are you? And, you know, it, the uh, quarantine continues. How are you doing in Los Angeles right now? Give us an update for our, your fans and followers. We're doing great out here. Um, things are going normal, more and more and more normal. You know, I have a gas station in uh, Castaic Lake, L.A. County. And sales have increased on Mother's Day and the weekend before Memorial Day. And we're just on an upward trend. Uh, people have been stir crazy and they're on the road and they need gas. Well, that's good. And that's great to know that the people are not going to want to be quarantined. They're, they at least are practicing social distancing, but they're traveling again. They're not just staying in their house. But go ahead and introduce our guests. Yeah, we went from yeah. 50% sales. We're back up to like maybe 80% now. So we're excited that money's starting to come in again. That's good. And then we have a very interesting guest, so go ahead and introduce our guest. All right, Dave, who is our guest? Well, we are honored to have an amazing author just cranks books out like uh, like people just, um, you know, eat breakfast, Kate Anderson Brower. And she's a journalist, and she examines post-White House lives of Jimmy Carter, my favorite Democrat, by the way, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama in this illuminating, anecdote-laden account. And opening with an Opal Oval Office interview with President Trump in a buoyant, exuberant mood after the release of the Mueller report, Brower then lists the unwritten rules that guide relationships between ex-presidents, avoid criticizing the sitting president at all times, hmm, come together for celebration, etc. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, Kate. Oh, my pleasure. So how are you surviving the uh, quarantine? What's going on with you? Give us an update. Well, we have three little kids, and I'm sitting in my small walk-in closet doing interviews all day. So, hey. um, <laughs> I, I hear you. Yeah, but it's going fine. I mean, I feel it's so terrible what's going on in the world, right? I'm just glad that I don't know anyone who's gotten sick, and it's, it's really scary. Um, and my kids are in, like, grade school, and... I worry about whether or not they're going to go back in the fall. It's just uncertainty. Oh, there's true uncertainty. And Dave, the new CDC guidelines have come out uh, regarding kids going back to school. And it's quite interesting. And we'll see what it sounds like the new normal in schools in September. But go ahead, Dave, with your first question for Kate. Well, Kate, I'm, I apologize, but I've got to ask you as <laughs> first question. Um, are you leaning toward... Uh, being a conservative, or are you leaning toward being a liberal? Because the slant that you write such a book like this is going to affect how people interpret it and how they read it. Oh, gosh. I mean, I really am. I know you're going to think this is a canned answer, but I'm very, you know, I'm a journalist. I try not to be um, 
one side or the other. I mean, I'm really trying to be straight down the middle and just report what, what I know. And that's my honest answer. Okay. Oh my God. So you're, you're like that, those journalists that used to exist 30 or 40 years ago, because it's hard to find one today who mm -hmm. doesn't have uh, an opinion. So congratulations for that. <laughs> Thank you. And then that process so, of, oh. yeah. So Dave, I was going to go, you can go with another question. Go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you, so how do you think President Trump uh, will be received in the President's Club? You know, can he see himself becoming friendly with any of the former presidents after he leaves office? If so, which ones? Well, I asked him that question when I interviewed him, and he said, uh, no, he, he won't be part of the club, and he doesn't think that he'll fit in with any of them. Um, you know, he's he really understands that he's, he is not going to be accepted, and he doesn't want to be accepted. I mean, he is somebody who has broken all the rules um, along the way, and I think one of them is this, that he's not hes not worried about it. Um, and, you know, I even asked him if he would go to President Obama's uh, library opening, and he said, no, mm -hmm. you know, why, why would he even invite me? So I think all the rules are different. <laughs> They've changed entirely with, with Trump in office. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. And, and it's, and again, he, I think ultimately in a lot of ways he wants to be liked and he knows he's offended a lot of people in certain yeah. ways and he likes to be liked. And if he feels that they're going to look down at him as not a politician, he's not going to waste his time doing, dealing with that. Is that what kind of the answer he gave you? It's absolutely the answer he gave me. You know, he doesn't, um, he, I think deep down, I mean, every every human being wants to be accepted and liked. Everyone wants to be liked. And I think that he's spent some time where a lot of people haven't liked him. And so it's put him really on the defensive. And so even during our interview at one point, he brought out a piece of paper. And it, it had what it said at the top, Trump's list of accomplishments, you know, and it had all the things that he thought his administration had done, you know, help the economy and all of these other things. But no other president would have felt the need to take out a list of their accomplishments to show a reporter. You know, it, I think it just shows you that he is defensive and there are a lot of people who don't like him and he's a human being. And so that would be your reaction, potentially. All right, David. And in all fairness to, to Trump, uh, you know, he learned an important lesson at all those White House journalist dinners, you know, they, they just mocked him. And who wants to go through that? Right, right. I mean, you know, people can say that Obama got a lot of favorable coverage from um, the media, uh, which I think is true. Uh, Trump has not. And uh, But Trump also, if you're going to be fair, at the same time, he's done a lot of things, especially on Twitter. A lot of the things he said have even upset some of his you know, really strong supporters because they've just gone over the line. Yeah, I talked to yeah. even Newt Gingrich would flat out, flat out say he he cringes when Trump tweets. So there are yeah. many people that are pro-Trump supporters that wish he would stay off Twitter because that's where a yeah. lot of people get their information. I think he knows that, but ultimately he is getting somebody who's advising him. And this is my belief that wants him to really stick to his base if that's the only chance of getting reelected. Would you agree with me on Kate on that? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely.